Oh, let's get it. Monday, March 15th, 2021. Born the Battle, brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs, the podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. Hope you all had a great week outside of podcast land. Got some great news at the top of the podcast, right off the top. I was informed last week, well, uh, I read a Rolling Stone article that was sent to me by a listener. Then I read the Hollywood Reporter and Variety articles to make sure that Born the Battle was nominated by the Podcast Academy for their inaugural awards for excellence in audios program, otherwise known as the Ambies. Uh, we got one nod in the personal growth and spirituality category. Uh, I wouldn't have thought we'd get the nod in, I mean, I would have thought we got the nod in the best society and culture category or best interview, maybe best host, but we'll take it. Uh, glad to see the podcast get highlighted in that way. Uh, as far as I've seen, and I haven't looked at all the categories, but I think we're the only veteran centric podcast in the running. And the only government-sponsored one, too, I think. Uh, I'm deeply honored that our humble little podcast that I started hosting as a one-man band in my in-law's basement uh, is good enough to be nominated next to the likes of the Long Island Medium and other podcasts with much higher budgets, like those that are Spotify and iHeart Originals. Uh, congrats to all the nominees, and we'll find out on a live stream on May 16th if, uh, if we come out on top. They're live streaming it, but I don't know how they're doing it at this point. So if you've been a dedicated listener for a while, you'll know that every time I promo an upcoming episode, it's like bad juju because it never works out the way I promo it. Uh, But we're doing it. Uh, I want to remind you that we're two episodes away from Secretary McDonough's interview here on Born the Battle. VA employee or not, it's not very often that a veteran gets to interview an incoming secretary so early. Uh, it was CNN's Jake Tapper was, was first up and, and then us. Uh, so stay tuned for that. That will be episode 235. Received a couple ratings and I got a clarification from what I put out on last week's monologue. Uh, last week I said that I was going to do some digging concerning VRNE and I did. Uh, remember we had a, a review from episode 230. And I went deep. Uh, I wanted it to be as clear as I can find it. I wanted to go straight to the source material. Uh, last week, I responded to a review that said, uh, then she informed me that I had zero months of post 9-11 GI Bill and that I would not be able to go to college. According to the program director of VBA Houston, that is a lie. According to the VBA national director, I'm assuming he means undersecretary. That is a lie. Okay. So on episode 230, VR&E director William Streitberger talked about the subsistence rates at around the 2810 mark. He talked about having one month of GI Bill entitlement to receive the higher GI Bill subsistence rate. It wasn't a question about overall eligibility and an overall tuition issue like like the reviewer posted and I researched. So bad on me for not going to the original conversation and actually listening on where we were in the conversation when we were talking about VR&E and this one month of GI Bill entitlement. Again, it was about the level of subsistence the VR&E program could provide. That's one. Two, I emailed some more folks over at the Veterans Benefits Administration, and I asked them to cite the policy or federal law, a definitive source in their response 
about um, this one month or zero months uh, when it comes to subsistence. And this is what I got. As outlined in 38 CFR, and that means Code of Federal Regulations, 21.40 and 21.50, eligibility for the VR&E program is not related to the eligibility for the post-9-11 GI Bill. And we weren't talking about the eligibility. Per 38 CFR 21.320, while a veteran participates in a training program, he or she may qualify for subsistence allowance or monthly stipend. The, they then go on to into the tenets of eligibility and benefits, which were the same that we discussed on the podcast. Then it says, as outlined in M28Charlie.Victor.Bravo.7.07, which is the VRE manual for how they administer the benefit. And I went I went on and read this. It's available online. Uh, the rate at which this stipend is paid could be comparable to the post 9/11 GI Bill basic allowance for housing rate if the veteran has at least one day of Chapter 33 entitlement remaining under the education program. If the individual has zero entitlement remaining, he or she does not qualify for the BAH rate, but would be paid under the VR&E Chapter 31 rate, uh, which that rate is covered in the entire uh, M28Charlie.Victor.Bravo.7 section. That's the, the manual's uh, the M28Charlie. Trust me, this is all searchable, and I went down a rabbit hole on this one, and I, I looked at it, and and this is this is what I this is what I'm I was reading. Uh, the VRNE Chapter 31 rate is based on their training program, enrollment rate, and number of dependents, if applicable. The rate of the monthly stipend is the only connection between VRNE and GI Bill programs. Eligibility for either program is not contingent on the other. However, they cannot be used concurrently. Uh, if you qualify for both, you got to pick one or the other. So the information in Mr. Straightberger's interview lines up with the federal regulations in the manual on how it's administered. Uh, sorry, P. Soren, uh, that you had a bad experience with the program. And I'm not familiar with uh, your case about not being able to go to college under the program. Anything I would guess about the issues that you had would be speculation at this point uh, when it came to the back and forth, the training that was thought needed to gain entry into the desired career field and whatnot. Uh, PSORN423, shoot me an email to podcast.va.gov and uh, and let's talk. All right, and I was also notified by a listener over the week uh, who found my Twitter uh, that the app Podchaser actually has reviews and that I had a couple on there. I had no idea this was a thing. Uh, The review is from Joe Stone. It says, five stars, excellent podcast featuring powerful stories from veterans. If you've served, these stories are not only a great example of resiliency, but also a reminder that we are not alone in our experiences and our struggles. Plus, the podcast also features frontline information on resources with the Department of Veterans Affairs. Very handy. Uh, thank you, Joe. And thanks for showing me that review section on Podchaser. I had I had no idea that was a thing. Uh, and I had another one back in July on there as well. As always, appreciate all the feedback every week. If you're so inclined, please feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It's a good way to communicate directly with the podcast here and help get the podcast recognized by more veterans in podcast land at the same time. News releases, I got three this week. First one is, I'm, I'm sure if you go to blogs.va.gov, you saw this one right on the front page. For immediate release, the Department of Veterans Affairs received over 71,000 doses of the Janssen COVID vaccine on March 3rd 
authorized by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration under the Emergency Use Authorization. In clinical trials, the Janssen vaccine, also known as the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, showed an efficiency of 66% against moderate to severe critical COVID-19 disease occurring in at least 28 days after vaccination and demonstrated greater than 85% efficacy in preventing severe critical COVID-19 disease occurring at least 28 days after vaccination. And the Janssen vaccine is, a, uh, is not an mRNA vaccine. Veterans who are enrolled and receiving healthcare in VA are eligible to get the vaccine when their facility when their facility has vaccine supply and reaches their risk category. Veterans are required to enroll with VA in order to receive health care. However, to receive care in VA, enrollees must meet certain eligibility requirements under current law, which may include income limits. Veterans can get the latest information and sign up to receive updates on VA's COVID-19 vaccine webpage at va.gov forward slash health hyphen care forward slash covid hyphen 19 hyphen vaccine hyphen stay hyphen informed. Okay, no more hyphens. All right, next one says for immediate release, the Department of Veterans Affairs is partnering with customer relationship management company Salesforce to improve access to essential VA services and resources among homeless and at-risk veterans. The status query and response system, otherwise known as SQUARES, because it's you know always acronyms, is a VA web application first created in 2015 to provide external homeless service organizations with reliable and detailed information about veteran eligibility. Thanks in part to the VA and Salesforce collaboration, the updated and expanded version of Squares lets VA partner organizations easily verify veterans' eligibility for VA homeless programs in real time. As of right now, Squares assists food pantries, homeless service providers, state agencies, nonprofits, and other organizations in swiftly connecting vulnerable veterans to VA's homeless prevention, rapid rehousing, and wraparound supportive services. VA and Salesforce will convene virtual workshops to educate users about Squares and its features. The tool will also create videos and case studies to educate registered users and potential new users on how to use the online tool. To learn more about Squares and other VA tools and programs to help homeless veterans, go to va.gov forward slash homeless. And the last one, the third one says for immediate release, women are the fastest growing segment of the U.S. veteran population, but only 40% of eligible women veterans are enrolled in VA healthcare. The VA and the Department of Defense collaborated in 2017 to study women veteran barriers to care and establish a pilot training program to address those barriers. All right, so the next one is, hey, if you got a women uh, soon-to-be veteran, if they're still serving, uh, make sure they're aware of this. It says, for immediate release, women are the fastest-growing segment of the U.S. veteran population, but only 40% of eligible women veterans are enrolled in VA healthcare. VA and the Department of Defense collaborated in 2017 to study women veteran barriers to care and to establish a pilot training program to address those barriers. The Department of Veterans Affairs launched its online Women's Health Transition Training Course enabling all transitioning service women and recently separated women veterans to have access to information about VA women's health services. The online self-paced instruction is available at tapevents.org forward slash courses and is designed to complement VA's transition assistance program, otherwise known as TAP. The online program provides information and resources to help participants understand VA's gender-specific healthcare services enroll in VA healthcare as quickly as possible after separation 
and be better prepared to manage their post-military health care. In 2018, VA began offering the women's health transition training at select installations and has since provided the instructor-led course in person and online to hundreds of transitioning service women. Feedback from pilot participants shows the course increases awareness of women's health services available through VA, and the on-demand course makes this important information readily available to all. Very good. So the National Vietnam War Veterans Day is coming up, and here on Born the Battle, we're going to serve up two great interviews for the next couple of weeks. This week's guest is a former Cav Scout, the former DOD Deputy Director of the Pentagon's Anti-Terrorism and Homeland Security Task Force, a former DOD Director of their Pandemic and Influenza Task Force, which recently came into play as he was an advisor for the CDC's recent task force, and was a former Deputy CG for Multinational Forces Iraq. He is the new Director of the Vietnam War Commemoration, whose entire goal is to thank those that never got a welcome home, our Vietnam veterans and their families, for their services and sacrifice that took way too long to be recognized. He is Army veteran Peter Aylward. Enjoy. And, and so sometimes I, I'm told that I got to quiet it down a little bit. So, hey, Tana, whenever you want to go, I'm ready to go. You got it. All right. Yeah, I'll record now. How about that? We're record, recording now, um, you know. Hey, so right up front, yeah. this is what I want to tell you and everybody over the VA, okay? You guys don't get enough credit for what you do for all our warriors and their families. So just thank you from the bottom of my heart for what you're doing. You've made a huge difference in our program. You've helped us, you know, reach over 720,000 Vietnam veterans with more than 3,223 events. And, and it's, it's been a great partnership. Mm-hmm. So thank you. Well, that's, that's, that's the point of this podcast, sir, is to, is to help try to reach those veterans. You know, maybe if we can get this through an email and, and th- or through a, you know, that they can click on the blog and then click on the, click right. on the, and then they can really learn what the, v- the 50th Vietnam commemoration is really about. Right. Um, no, I, I appreciate that. I'll take that back. And I, I know specifically for me, you know, Vietnam veterans, they bore a certain cross for us. When they came home, they didn't get the thank you for your service. They didn't get the, they didn't get any of that. They got a very different treatment, but I think it was a, unfortunately a necessary cross that they bore to enjoy. So we can enjoy the way we came home, you know, so. So, so Tan, I, I, you know, I'm I'm, I'm all over that, right? So I've I've been uh, working with the uh, Joint Chiefs from all the services, including our new Space Forces, General Raymond. General Raymond's father was actually a Vietnam vet. Oh, was he? Okay. And he passed away about two, two years ago. So I, I made a special effort to get him a uh, surviving spell certificate uh, for his mother, who's still alive. And so when, I've been, when I see them and I look them in the eye, I remind them that our Vietnam veterans, our nation's blood and treasure from a generation ago, they were treated shamefully. And there's something that we can do about it. And what we're going to do is teach our children how to love this country, one Vietnam veteran at, at a time, by going down in their neighborhoods and thanking and honoring them. 100%. Well, sir, thank you for joining, coming here on Born the Battle. Oh, absolutely. Appreciate you. Appreciate you. Yeah, appreciate you coming on. Um, I think we spoke about a year ago, if I don't remember, if I remember right. We, we shot some emails back and forth. Uh, Right after I met up, met up with Major General Jackson, your predecessor, right. 
Uh, was there any movement from Major General Swanick? I'm going to call him out. Major General Swanick and, uh, and Marvin out at NASCAR at the Coke 600? Uh, no. So what, what happened to, I think, everybody uh, was the fact that, um, you know, this COVID virus yes. really made it hard on just making good things happen. January, February, we, we, we're getting the indicators and warnings. Yeah. And then and, and March 13th, the president declared a national emergency. Uh, and we had to cancel and postpone almost 1,200 events. Wow. And some of the bigger ones, uh, like, you know, we love to do with the VA is, is laying wreaths uh, on the National Mall. Yeah. Usually try to get the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of Veterans Affairs and we usually invite a number of the MSOs and the VSOs to come down so we can help recognize veterans, you know, POWs, Gold Star families. Uh, and if there's a Medal of Honor recipient, you know, that is in the, in the neighborhood, they can come down. And so it's just made it hard for us. I, I, I'll tell you, February 25th, uh, 2020, I was down briefing uh, the NORTHCOM Commanders Conference. Mm. And the NORTHCOM uh, is also a bilateral command with NORAD. And they're a Canadian guy. So, you know, we had between 30 and 50,000 Canadians actually serving the U.S. Armed Forces. So I, I grabbed the Canadian guy. I said, you got to help me mm. reach them. There was one of the guys on their staff that was a Vietnam vet. They didn't even know it. Oh, wow. And I made them pin Joe Bonnet in front of the entire command team. And as I'm briefing them, I'm thinking, I say, you know, so I was the DOD director of the Pandemic Influenza Task Force back in 2005 and I'm there. I was thinking, I should really be talking about this pandemic stuff. Sure. Uh, but as that way the hand unfolded, General uh, O'Shaughnessy and Emma Grady, big supporters. And in fact, as this administration rolls out the 300 million sure. vaccine, sure. so what's happening to that big time? All right. Very good. We'll get into that. We'll, we'll, definitely, we'll definitely dig into that. Sure. You know, when I came in to interview Major General Jackson, I was all, I was all hyped because you were, t- you were talking about the cancellations. You know, when I came in, I was all I was all hyped. We did the interview. We sat down. We we let everybody know when the when the events were, and then everything fell apart due yeah. to COVID. So, how have you been a, been able to adapt to that? So we've had uh, congressional partners uh, do virtual events uh, down at the soldiers' homes, uh, where the, uh, the lapel pin will be sanitized by the staff members there. Okay, and they'll be presented to them. Uh, we've had uh, nursing homes where the communities. Uh, salute the veterans inside from outside. I think we've seen this with the hospitals, with the communities thanking the, the whole medical community for doing all the work they're doing on the COVID. Uh, and like with the honor flights where we used to have veterans come to town, now we have the communities doing parades by the soldiers and sailors in the veterans' homes. Oh, wow. So those are three great ways that uh, you could do virtually and, and social distance. I think I've seen one with a... With a- with a, you know, everyone is saluting the veterans from outside, and the nurses actually present the pin, right? Correct, correct. And we actually did, uh, we supported a, a big ceremony for Sergeant Green down in South Carolina. Uh, he was part of, um, of Hamburger Hill. Okay. And he was a veteran that never received any kind of recognition because he had been evacuated off the battlefield, and all his paperwork and stuff somehow got lost and fell, fell through the cracks. So they they had a, a a really nice ceremony for him. So through that through that ceremony, you you were get you were all figuring out exactly how to do this how in this kind of gotcha. And, and and it continues to improve. If you go to our website, you'll find a, a number of different examples. We've made it really easy for you. Go to our website, 
and, uh, and that'll really help you with thinking through how you can do things virtually and in a safe manner. Gotcha. That website, I can, I'll put it right in the blog on blogs.va.gov of this episode so people can go there and click. Terrific. Thank you. Yeah. Right now, uh, we started it on January 13th. It was up at the Javits Center up in New York City. Right. So you go in, you get screened, you get your vaccine. And before you leave the Javits Center, they have to tell you when you're going to schedule your second shot. And when they're getting ready to schedule your second shot, they ask you, are you a veteran? And if you answer yes, and if you're a Vietnam veteran, they recognize you right there before you leave the job at Center. Wow. And it has been What terrific. a great way to catch some of the vet, some of the Vietnam veterans. And, and that's and that's that's one thing that I think uh, is, is uh, it's kind of a strategic inflection point for us. The fact that we're gonna have three hundred million vaccines distributed across the country yeah. means to me that we're gonna reach every living Vietnam veteran. In the United States, how were you able to integrate? How were you able to integrate into that process? Was it was it through the VA? No, it, it's actually um, the National Guard uh, uh, has got a lot of the um, surge centers at the state level. The VA, though, you know, through the VHA, has got the hospitals and clinics, and we're certainly leveraging that right now. Okay, you know, we, good. We, we, in fact, I think we have a teleconference later on today. Okay, yeah, that would be great to what you're doing at the Java Center if you can do it at every VA, yeah. every VA medical facility. Uh, Team Rubicon, I know they're doing something with uh, with a bunch of other nonprofits and VSOs. But yeah, if you can integrate yourself into every single one right. of those with that question. So there's there's, there's there's kind of three levels there. You know, there's the uh, there's the stuff that's going on in the public sector that the National Guard has been supporting at the state level, right? And the uh, Health and Human Services, the CDC and FEMA have put a request for assistance in to have active component augmentation of that. So that's one level. Through the VA hospital system and the clinics is another level. And then DOD has its own hospitals and clinics that have a retiree base as well that they serve. So there's, there's kind of three three levels for the physically able ones. Sure. The ones that are unable, the assisted living, the nursing homes, the soldiers' homes, uh, palliative care, rehabilitative care, in some cases hospice, that's a little harder. So, like, I, Yeah, I, trying I, to integrate into something like exactly. that. Exactly. So for you guys in the VA and us in DOD, uh, we've been asking the secretaries to send a letter to the employees because they have veterans, Vietnam veteran family members, and they know where they are. Okay, yeah. and they can help us reach that way. Okay. All right. So there's yeah. there's a couple of different levels that we can get after here to help reach our veterans and, and thank them in a timely fashion. Very good. You know, here on Born the Battle, we're gonna we're, we always go back. We always go way back. <laughs> um, the first question we always ask is where and when did you know that the military service was going to be the next step in Major General Aylward's life? So, you know, um, for me, uh, my family has served this country since Gettysburg. Really? Uh, yes, with the First Corps. And my dad was uh, was a Corsair pilot in World War II. Oh, wow. Combat over Okinawa was with the occupation forces in Japan. He was recalled for Korea. And during Marine Korea, or, or? A Marine Corsair pilot. And, uh, and he had a really bad crash down at Cherry Point, North Carolina, that almost killed him. So growing up in, in my neighborhood, uh, my best friend, um, his father uh, got the Purple Heart on Iwo Jima as a young Marine. And my best friend joined uh, before I did, and he talked me into joining. 
And so, you know, as a young kid, uh, I enlisted in 1976 as an 11 Delta 10, which is a recon specialist back then. Cav Scout. Is that Cav Scout. Right. So when I was making that decision between services, you know, back in 2003, <laughs> Cav Scout was my army option. Right. Uh, however, it would have been for the money yeah, and right. money only because there was a big bonus to join Cav Scouts in 2003. Well, so the life expectancy on the battlefield for Cav Scout <laughs> was very short. So, the, you know, that's what... The, uh, for folks that have served in the cavalry, and y'all know it, you know, the Stetsons and Spurs, it's, it's, it's a culture. It's just a way of life. It's different than mm. um, anybody else. If you ain't cav, you ain't. And it's just, it is what it is. So our squadron commander at the time was my best friend's father, he, you know, who got a, a purple heart on, on, the, uh, on Iwo Jima. And the guy was just, he, he, was, he was awesome. He was just an awesome leader. Yeah. And, 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 and frankly, it just carries over what we're doing today. You know, it's a labor of love. He taught me how to take care of our warriors and their families, you know. And, and he just, you know, that's what you do. You take care of warriors and their families. And that's what we're doing with this program. We're making sure that every Vietnam veteran and their family member received the nation's thank and gratitude, something that should have been done 50 years ago. Oh, absolutely. It was shameful the way they were treated. We've got to fix that. We, we owe it to them. Absolutely. Absolutely. But following 9-11, you became a plank holder for U.S. Northern Command. Now, I I don't think I've ever seen that term in a bio before. Right. What is, what is that? What does that mean? So, I, I was tapped early, uh, right after 9-11. I, I received a phone call, actually, it was on Christmas Eve by Lieutenant General Roger Schultz. that asked me, he says, Peter, I got something for you. And, you know, he says, what are you doing the first week in February? I said, well, sir, I'm going to be in Bosnia visiting part of the brigade. He said, how about the second week? I said, sir, I got a brigade warfighter. I said, well, how about the third week? I was supposed to be out in Salt Lake City at the Paralympics visiting part of the brigade that was supporting the 2002 Winter Olympics. Gotcha. But he sent me down to Norfolk uh, as part of a terms of reference team to help with the creation of what would be Northern Command. And so uh, they wanted me to go out there and help them stand it up earlier, but I, I had to finish. We had a brigade warfighter in June, so I didn't get out there until uh, late July, early August. And, uh, and we helped stand up that command, you know, after 9-11, and it fell in on NORAD, which was pretty much responsible for the air domain at that time. And so it was, it was just a great experience. Um, but what did plank holder mean? So it was just a small group of us yeah. that were considered plank holders. As, uh, it was less than 90 folks that helped with the creation of Northern Calm itself. And uh, the four-star general, General Eberhardt, uh, at Eberhardt had a special coin that he gave to the plank holders. Okay. So that was kind of cool. Standing up Northern Command. Very interesting. Yep. Very interesting. Now, I, also in your bio, I see that you received master's degrees from both the Marine Corps University. And on behalf of the Marine Corps, you're welcome. And and in the National War College, what was different about those two schools? Uh, so the Marine Corps University, it was really, uh, you know, I graduated in 1995. In fact, one of my classmates is the current commandant, General Dave Berger. It oh, very good, pretty sir. awesome. So that was the first year. That was the first service school to award master's degrees. And it was really, frankly, as a result of Al Gray, the godfather of the current day Marine oh, man. Corps. Just grabbing the bull by the horns and embracing Goldwater Nichols. From what I he- heard about General Gray, uh, 
you know, he was the last Marine Corps commandant that would just literally go, do you have the next rank? You're a good Marine. Okay, you're promoted. And just drive his staff crazy. I, General, General Al Gray is one of my heroes. So I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm more like General Gray than I am like General Dunford. He's got a few <laughs> rough edges. And General Dunford is just the most polished, and he's he's like the perfect general. Yes, sir. Uh, and um, and so the the difference between the two is is that at the Commander General Staff School, I got to live on Quantico, and. It's just being with the Marines. You know, my dad was still alive at the time. Oh yeah, yeah. And National War College is different because you got to commute. But but both of them, you know, uh, it's, it's got an incredibly talented group of folks that get to get together and commiserate and just learn from each other about taking care of our warriors and doing our nation's bidding. Very good. Um, now you've held a number of, of command and staff positions, command and staff positions, on your way to, to Major General. Uh, one being the Deputy Director of Anti-Terrorism, Homeland Defense, Pentagon Joint Staff. It, you know, it, it seems to me we have, we have an entire government department for that. What was, the, was that being the main liaison office between the DOD and Homeland Security, or was there another purpose? So the, the J-34 uh, really stood up after Colby Towers. The first J-34 uh, was General Jim Conway, who ended up being Commodore. I was fortunate enough when I went to the J-3, I was his videographer for for a bit, and he says, "You know him." He says, "He is." I wish he would narrate my life. Right. So yeah. we we had we, the commonalities we had with with each other is that his father served with the forty fifth Infantry Division, National Guard Division, during World War II. My father was a Marine, and I'm a National Guard guy. So yes, sir. It was just you know it was just kind of funny, and he was a St. Louis Cardinals fan, and I'm a diehard Red Sox fan. So <laughs> we had a lot of fun with that. But it was wonderful for me to be able to benefit from his experience, having been the J-34. So it was the global anti-terrorism force protection. And a lot of what it had to do with was the indicators and warnings. You know, the, the failure of initiative from 9-11 was, was really just the failure to share information sure. with the different agencies so you could prevent things from happening. Okay. And then the Homeland Defense portfolio included uh, quite a bit of uh, different things, everything from pandemics to fires, floods, earthquakes, riots. So more than just terrorism. Right. You actually have some weird stuff out there like solar flares that can actually disrupt, you know, our grid. And so it's the critical infrastructure, the defense industrial base, the power projection base. So midi- trying to mitigate a lot of that stuff. There's, there's all sorts of stuff that we got involved in. Pla- a lot of planning. And we spent, I probably spent more time uh, across the river in the interagency in the Eisenhower Executive Office building in the White House sitting room than most of my colleagues. Um, that I served with. But the, the talent was incredible. I was privileged to serve with just some remarkable people. And, uh, and we try to make a difference every day. Yeah, when General Con- Conway is, you know, commandant to one of your colleagues, I would say you did serve some pretty, pretty, pretty great. It was great. Yeah. yeah. Sir, what what year were you the deputy CG of, of multinational forces Iraq? Yeah, that was uh, 2009 or 2010. That was actually as they were starting to uh, bring it down. Very good. Transition down. Yeah. Right. And so one of the great things for me was when I got over there was it was I, I was with the first call. And what was cool was I you know, I, I told you that my my great great uncle served with the first corps at Gettysburg. Yeah. And so it was just that was like way cool. You know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Whenever yeah. you can connect history like that, that's it is. with it's your family, awesome. that's awesome. Yeah. What was the greatest challenge at that point? So they were getting ready for their elections, right? And uh, and we wanted to ensure that we had a safe and secure election. 
and, and it was it was one too much different than the portfolio I had back in the J thirty four. You know, yeah. getting ready for inaugurals and getting ready for like a Democratic Republican national conventions. So homeland homeland security, but Iraq in Iraq or the Iraq version. Oh man! Yeah, in the Iraq version, you know, you had VBIDs and IEDs were really disruptive. You know? Not too much different than the 2004 Madrid Spain bombing, you know, that happened back there that disrupted oh, yeah. their election. So there were a lot of historical benchmarks to use so that they understood why we were doing things we were doing. There was one area that uh, we, we were really having a lot of problem with was forensics attribution and sensitive site exploitation of when an IED went off you know, so that you could do get the bad guys and, and, and take care of them. And so using that forensics attribution, sensitive site exploitation, you know, to them it was like we were going to mutilate the bodies. So he said, look, no, this is what we're going to do. Oh, to the local population. To the local population. Oh, gotcha. So I said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do scientific fact-finding so you can take the bad guys and put them in jail. And that made more sense to them. We were able to get stuff done like that. That you had to mitigate. You had to mitigate. But what really, you know, what really important in Iraq and, and even in our country is it's the local neighborhood. And if the local neighborhood is safe, then you're going to have a prosperous and thriving neighborhood. And for them, you know, tourism and antiquities – but really help their economy. And so, oh, yeah. so what you can talk to them about is, is you know, they remember when they were kids, if you talk to them about their children and their grandchildren, they want to make a difference for them. And they want it to be like when they were kids. And so you, you can have some commonalities, you can get stuff done. What prompted retirement? What year was that? Oh, uh, yeah, that was 2012. So, you know, the um, uh, I, I had a great run. I had um, I had been given a, a couple of opportunities to go do other things, but uh, I, I'm a beat-up warrior. I'm, I'm kind of beat up a little bit. Uh, I'm a cancer survivor. I'm a traumatic brain injury. I, I, got, my, I got my bell going pretty good uh, at the rocket attack over in Iraq. And I had, uh, I had some family issues that I wanted to take care of. I, I recently lost two sisters to cancer, man. You know, I'm one of 11, and, uh, and you know, so... One of 11? Yeah, I'm one of 11. So, you, you know, you spend 20, 30, 40 years of your life in uniform. You spend the rest of your life with the people that you love and the people that love you. Yeah. And so it was my time to uh, to spend a little bit more time on that side of it. The first day you didn't put your uniform on, what did Pete Aylward do? Uh, I think I slept. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, the... Uh, the for, for all our warriors and their families, this post-9-11 environment has been incredibly hot. Yeah. Like, and I've, I've been in some of those jobs, like three years in the Joint Staff J-3 in the National Military Command Center. We had guys that would come there and wish they could redeploy because they saw their family more. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, my, my wife, you know, I, I spent seven years in the Beltway of my career, six right. years, something like that. And, yeah. and we, re- we realized really quick the same uh, thing. Yeah, it's hard on, it's, it's, it, it, when, a, when a warrior serves, the family serves. You know? And it, it's hard on the families. It's been hard on the warriors. And for all the, all the warriors and, and the families that are listening, thank you. Thank you for making a difference. Thank you for stepping up and taking an oath of office to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. You're teaching your children how to love this country. And that's what we want to do. Absolutely. Um, you, so you came, per, you came pretty close. 
pretty over pretty quickly to the to the commemoration because you started advising here in 2012, right? Yeah. So um, General Kicklider started engaging me when he found out that I was going to get ready to retire. Very good. Now, now, you were here when I interviewed your predecessor last year, Major General Jackson. Um, what a great man! Yes. What a great passion for for this commemoration and its mission. And if you don't, if you haven't heard that interview yet, please uh, go back in the archives and listen to that one. Um, how did you become the new director, and what does the mission of this commemoration mean to you? So, uh, Jim and me had known each other uh, from standing up Northcom. He was the MDW commander, actually. And, uh, you know, he was actually a, the guy. Acronyms, MDW. Military District of Washington commander. And so he was the Military District of Washington commander when the plane crashed into the Pentagon on 9-11. Oh, wow. And, and so we, we had worked together uh, previously, and um, we both got here about the same time, frankly. I think Jim would have liked me to take on take, take it off a little bit earlier, but I, <laughs> I, I, I actually, I had two back surgeries in 2015, and I was like, Jim, I, I was like, come on, I, the docs were covering me up pretty good. Can you, uh, can you hang on a little longer oh, while man, I recover? Yeah. So yeah. I've had uh, uh, several dozen surgeries since I started with the uh, commemoration. And, um, and so uh, it was in May of this past year that Mr. Muir asked me, if I would. And so on, on March 13th, when the president declared a national emergency, a good friend of mine, Bob Salasis, who's kind of the SecDef's lead for COVID, finally asked me to help out. Mm-hmm. I got a little bit of background on that. And unfortunately, my sister Mary passed away on March 16th from pancreatic cancer. So I didn't get over to the FEMA NRCC to the 23rd of March. And I worked pretty much, you know, we were working seven days a week. NRCC. National Response Coordination Center. Roger. Federal Emergency Management Agencies, collaborative effort with the Health and Human Services. So the Health and Human Services, they got brilliant doctors and scientists. We had to operationalize this, and that's what we helped them out do. Wow. And we were working uh, some some pretty good hours. So August 3rd, you know, I'm the director, right? And and, and working with the team here, we're, we're moving uh, in a slightly different direction in terms of just getting out there and, and getting stuff done, you know. Mr. Muir is the executive agent. I am the action agent, and I make things happen. <laughs> Very good. So, so before this commemoration, you were working with uh, HHS, CDC, uh, FEMA. FEMA. I was the DOD Pandemic Influenza Task Force uh, Commander, a lead OIC. Back in uh, 2005? Back in 2005, yeah. time frame. And so, Tracking. And then from 2006 to 2009, I was the chairman's lead for the same portfolio. So, I just want to make sure that you know our listeners are going to say, the commemoration director was working. Okay, got yeah, so established. They didn't have a bench. They didn't have a bullpen. I said, hey, you know, let me help you out. Let's get this stuff done. Very good. And um, we just jumped right in. And, and what was helpful for that, though, is because we had more than 1,200 events canceled, you know, I was able to engage with, like, Admiral Jawar, Dr. Bob Cadillac, and some of the folks who can help me reach – the neighborhoods and the veterans that I need to reach. Ah, so, so there was a was connection there, between yes, the commemoration. While I was over there. I yeah. was. I, I, you I, still I, had your eye on this. I call. still had my eye on taking care of our veterans and their families. Right? So I, I, I made uh, Pete Gaynor at the time was a FEMA administrator. I made him a, a, an honorary partner. They're actually partners with us. I reinvigorated by presenting him one of our flags. Same with Admiral Jawar. Same with Dr. Bob Cadillac, who happened to be a Vietnam vet. Right. And yeah. so uh, very helpful for us to continue to move the ball down the field. Tracking. 
Now, your career came later from Vietnam, just like Major General Jackson, but you served, but you served with many. What does it mean personally for you to fulfill this mission and, and giving back to that generation in some way? Yeah, I enlisted in 1976, so you know we stood on their shoulders. They, they took me my out of that wing. Yeah. Uh, our squad would come in a, was a young Marine on Iwo Jima, but most of the senior officers in our CAV squadron had served in combat, and quite a few of them in Vietnam. And some of them were very highly decorated. And they just, they knew about leadership, they knew about taking care of soldiers, and they knew about taking care of our nation's bidding and what that meant. And it really had a huge impact on me and my life and my family. My son, my youngest son, continues to wear the nation's cloth. My wife is a veteran as well. So, you know, it's a labor of love. And uh, until I breathe my last breath, I am going to help take care of veterans and their families. It's outstanding. Um, did you ever have any, any mentors from that generation? Oh, yeah. Um, During your, your military career? Yeah, so there's, there's one I actually still get together with, coffee or breakfast every now and again. There's Lieutenant General Roger Schultz, Silver Star, Bronze Star, Purple Heart. He happens to be the president of the Army's Museum. Okay. I taught him how to drive in D.C. <laughs> he's, he's, no he's, small feet. He's no small Iowa. feet. Yeah. So, General Schultz, if you're listening to this, um, we got to get together for breakfast. Outstanding. <laughs> Outstanding. You know, so so this commemoration, you, you give out pins. Um, now, these pins, I mean, they may be small, but I, I, I personally have seen, seen the effect of what these pins have meant uh, to some veterans. Uh, I gave one, uh, I gave a couple, I've given a couple away, and again, it's a, it's a small token, uh, something that you put on your, your, you know, something you put on your suit or something you put on your, your clothing, your hat. Uh, but man, I saw it in that veteran's face when I gave it to him. It invokes incredible emotion. Yeah. And everybody here on the team loves doing it. And if you haven't been involved in pinning a Vietnam veteran with our lapel pin, I highly encourage you to do it. It's just, it's, it, it's awesome. It, it really, uh, it evokes incredible emotion. It's, it's a lasting memento to the nation's service. And it's a, it's a really nice little lapel pin. Yeah. And on the back it says, a grateful nation, thanks and honest you. But there was a lot of thought put into that pen. And it's designed to give to every veteran who served from November 1st, 1955 to May 15, 1975. Regardless of where you served, served in the armed forces, okay, you're eligible for this lapel pen. So on the front, you'll see an eagle. And it represents courage, honor, and dedicated service to the nation. It's surrounded by a blue circle which matches the canton of the American flag, signifies vigilance, perseverance, and justice. It has a laurel wreath. It's a tie-in-armed symbol that represents victory, integrity, and strength. And there's stripes in the back that represent, behind the eagle, that represent the American flag. And it's surrounded by six stars that represent the Allies, whose nation, blood, and treasure served and sacrificed with us, Australia, New Zealand, the Philippines, Republic of Korea, and Thailand. Interesting. I didn't know that. Why those years? 
I know, I know, I know General Jackson uh, touched on it in the last episode, but just in case anybody has never heard that episode. Yeah, and so you know, if we had a room full of history historians, that all question it too. So <laughs> exactly. November first, nineteen fifty-five, was when the military assistance group Vietnam stood up, Bag Bagby, and then May fifteenth, nineteen seventy-five, was the Mayaguez incident, and so those are the two bookends for anybody that served in uniform and armed forces, regardless of where you served, you are a Vietnam period veteran. Yeah, so there's no there's no like geographical area for no. this pen. It's if you raised your hand and you were serving at that time. Yes, very good. Um, now this commemoration has partners. Now, I, I like. I'm going to go back to NASCAR a little bit because I think it's a great example. Uh, NASCAR is the governing body, and you know they hold events at tracks. But really, the ones that really that I think um, are that do the the most at the track is the track staff itself, you know, and, and those that run that track, whether it be Homestead or, or Charlotte. Well, we, we'll use professional sports, for example, like the NFL, Major League Baseball. Uh, we've met with both the commissioners. <laughs> That's and great. The commissioners uh, really embrace what we're trying to do, but they can't tell what the team owners what to do, Yeah, frankly. Yeah. So, like the commissioner of Major League Baseball, Rob Manfred, um, what he wasn't responsible is the World Series. So game two of the World Series a few years back was the L.A. Dodgers and Houston Astros. He did something very special for us on the field. But we had a Medal of Honor recipient. We had a prisoner of war. We had representatives from each one of the services. And we had a special Vietnam vet, was Roy Olson, who was a 1964 Los Angeles Dodgers World Champion. And then he deployed to Vietnam where he got the Purple Hat. Wow. The other thing the Commission Major League Baseball did was when they had the All-Star game here in town, he, he did some special stuff for us to recognize our Vietnam veterans. Roger Goodell, on the other hand, you know, he helped us with the teams, and individual teams uh, have done uh, some larger things than others. The New York Jets, the Atlanta Falcons, the Chicago Bears, the New England Patriots, uh, and the New York Giants. The New York Giants, uh, we started asking the teams to help us uh, get to the physically unable ones to get to the events. So, you know, so they can hold events. Interesting. But we have, you know, because of the age of the Vietnam veteran, there's a lot that you now are nursing homes or assisted living, palliative care, geriatric care. How many are we losing a day or a year? 557, according to the VA. A day. This is the challenge here is like at the end of today, we will have lost 505,000 Americans to COVID. By the time the fourth anniversary of National Vietnam War Veterans Day rolls around, March 29th, we will have lost over 200,000 Vietnam vets. And so wow. the VA tells me the statistician we're losing about 557 a day. I don't know what the impact of COVID is. Sure. It's probably a lot higher. Yeah. You know? And so we have a real sense of urgency about getting out and recognizing them. Now, is it is it pretty easy to become a, a partner? Uh, you just have to be an organization, right? From what I remember from the last episode, either be a public, private, nonprofit. We have a very simple, it's kind of a one page. It protects our brand, though. We, we need two names and a signature, and it allows you to order material from us free of charge. We ship it free, we give it to you free, but we're asking you to do it so that, you know, we protect the brand and we, we want to do the recognition in a dignified and respectful manner. And there are some groups out there that we really, frankly, don't want representing our brand. How can you become a partner? So you can go online uh, and you can go to our website, 
You can please plug it in for us. <laughs> you got it. And, uh, go I'll, put it website the and I'll put it in the blog on blogs.vn. Thank you so much. And it's yeah, very easy it. to pull down, and it's very easy to become a partner. Very good, sir. Um, now, what, give me some examples of, of, of some of your partners. You give me some sports teams. Um, can you be a city? Can you be yes, a, you can be a, you can be a city. We've, you've had, uh, we've had uh, congressmen. We've had senators. So it can be it can be two people. It can be a body of it can be a body of fifty thousand. Body of fifty thousand. Um, okay. Yeah. So I, I think our biggest challenge uh, in the program has been just the tremendous turnover in leadership and and just the reeducation of people that the program exists. Yeah. We need your help. They're y'all warriors. They're our nation's blood and treasure, and they're in your neighborhood, and we owe it to them and their families to take care of them. Let's do this. Absolutely. Uh, for those that don't know, what is the role of a Vietnam Veteran 50th commemoration partner? What's your role if you do be, say, hey, I, I want to help in some way? Yes, and, and we even made it easier on, on that one, too, as well. So what we're asking you to do is to hold an event. An event can be really anything you want. It could be uh, you could post a story on the website about one of the Vietnam veterans in your neighborhood. It could be as simple as that. That's an event. Okay. Or it could be something more sophisticated, uh, like we did with Sergeant Green down in South Carolina, where the governor made it Sergeant Green Day, and they had a big ceremony in front of the state house with, uh, you know, presentation of colors, the Star Spangled Banner, benediction, a couple of keynote speakers, and then some formal presentations, along with recognizing the Vietnam vets. All right, we've done it on Fenway Park. We've had over 1,100 Vietnam veterans and their families come out. And have, 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 have a flyover with the Jets, first pitch. <laughs> and then at the third inning, we had every player and everybody in the stand, okay, hold up a sign. All right, all the coaches, the umpires, it was the Yankees, Red Sox, they held up signs with the name of it that they were thanking. Wow. Right? So we can do more sophisticated things. Very good. So uh, get and then getting the pins to, to, the, to the Vietnam veterans that haven't had one yet how many vietnam veterans have you have you honored with this commemoration so far we're, we're a little over three million vietnam veterans that were recognized and it's about 6.2 living today we got we got about three million more to go to recognize and and, and so we look at that again. oh so you're halfway we're we're, we're yeah we're a little more, more than halfway wow and, and so there's three categories the physically able you know we talked about that the physically unable and then there's the unwilling, and that's that's where I need uh, folks' help. For folks that are listening to this podcast, if you have a relative that has served during the Vietnam period, November 1st, 1955 to May 15th, 1975, and you know where they live, right? help me, help us, reach them and thank them, and uh, we really appreciate that. Absolutely. Um, how long are partners expected to support this effort? When they do become a partner, when when, it, when we first started, before I got it, before I became the director, we, we asked them when they became a partner to do two events a year for a three year period. Now what we're asking you to do is to do at least one event over the next five years. Okay, because okay. yeah. it could it could take five years of planning, depending on if you want to get jet flyovers. And and, and some yeah. of them are more sophisticated, and some of them have committees. Some of them will have special legislation passed. Gotcha. Um, so there's, there's all sorts of uh, varying degrees of sophistication. Gotcha. I, I like the fact that a, a journalist can be a partner and just write yes. something up. Yeah, write something. That's good stuff. Yeah. Um, how many events have has this commemoration conducted so far? Oh, boy. We have uh, a little over 19,000 
wow. events uh, with more than uh, 12,000 partners as part of the commemoration. Conduct, so conducted, supported. Conducted, supported. And, yeah. and we believe there's actually a lot more that's going on out there that, you know, that frankly, sometimes our partners don't. <laughs> they don't, they don't report know. the numbers. They just we, knock we, it out. Uh, right, right. Yeah. And, and, that's, and, that, and, that's, and that's exactly what we want, frankly. Sure. Okay? Yeah. You know, so start so taking it to where it becomes a life. It where we have becomes to make a life it, of its own, and we have yeah. to make it easier for them to tell us what happened. Okay, yeah. uh, in the past, you know, fill out another piece of paper. You know, that's that's the government way, but that's we can do better than that, and we're working toward that. Very good. How many pins have been given out? Has it been three million pins? Uh, no. So our lapel pin, um, uh, really, we had a joint session of Congress in July of 2015. But we rolled out our lapel pins. So before that, uh, when we talk about how many Vietnam veterans were recognized from 2012 to 2015, we were giving out 10 pins. Mm. Okay. And so um, it's, it's uh, the aggregation of what we did from the get-go to what we've done today. We've reached over 3 million. Gotcha. Very good. But like you said, this, is, this whole thing is, is kind of a – to thank a Vietnam veteran, to thank every Vietnam veteran, it's, it's definitely a race against time. Uh, my, the only other living service members that I had in my family, other than me and my brother, that, that were alive when I grew up were my two uncles. Uh, they were Vietnam veterans. Uh, Agent Orange got one in the 90s. And, uh, and you know, for alcoholism got right. my other uncle in the, in the early 2000s. Um, w- when you talk about the urgency, it's, it's definitely there. Yeah, so, uh, you know, um, I'm tackling the Joint Chiefs in the hallway. You know, I'm, I'm, and I'm, 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 I'm forcing myself into places that people sometimes don't want me to uh, brief. And one of them recently was the Reserve Forces Policy Board. And so when I pleaded my case to the Reserve Chiefs about helping us thank and honor our Vietnam veterans in the neighborhoods where they lived, I reminded them that we're losing 557 a day. And the other thing I told them is, you know, the tragedy, the national tragedy that we have that we're losing 18 to 22 veterans a day to suicide. And 65% of those are veterans over the age of 50. And when I said that, General Panero told a story about his brother who also served in Vietnam. But when he came back, you know, PTSD and TBI weren't even in the lexicon back then. And for our Vietnam veterans, the invisible wounds of war included the wounds of neglect, of indifference, of being forgotten, of being treated shamefully. And his brother, you know, got 100% disabled from the VA, and he was supposedly all better. But on November 11, 1971, he took his own life, right? There is this national tragedy it includes the invisible wounds of war, and we have to help our veterans and their families out. And I think that when we look them in the eye, okay, it changes them. It's 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 a scene from Saving Private Ryan, where that age Matt Damon looks at his wife and says, "Tell me I lived a good life. Tell me I'm a good man that I've earned it." When we put a lapel pin on our veteran, we look him in the eye and say, "You did earn it." made a difference in our life and you are a good man because all a woman because you stepped up and you took the oath to support and defend the constitution of the united states and you were willing to put your life on the line 
We're looking, we're, looking, we're looking forward to getting our vaccines so we can get back out there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we just, I think everybody that's dealing with COVID's probably got cabin fever. And we're just waiting to get our vaccines so we can get back on the road. Now, many many of these are, are national events, right? They're, they're hometown, local events commu- in the community that, that partners put on in their community, right? In the neighborhoods they're, where the veterans live. That's yeah. really what we want you to do is in the neighborhoods where the veterans live. That's, that's really the best way to do it. So, uh, of course, you know, this drops uh, a couple weeks before National Vietnam Veterans Day on March 29th. Why was that day picked, that day? When U.S. Military Assistance Command was disestablished, and it was the also the day that the last U.S. combat troops departed Vietnam. Ah. And so that was why that day was picked. Gotcha. Uh, President Trump signed it into law uh, in March of 2017. And so this this year is the fourth anniversary. How many more years do we have for the commemoration? Right. So the, the commemoration itself um, received an authorization and appropriation that takes us through uh, fiscal year 25. But for what we're doing, this is generational. This is never going to end. This is veterans thanking veterans. It may have started on the 50th year or the 50th commemoration or and, and, and it, it even continues so we but we have a partner with 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 reach across america so even when a soldier passes the special times during the year where we still go down and present a wreath to their final resting place salute the headstone and call out the name and so it's remember honor and the, what if that helps is teach the next generation yeah to love to love this country and to love the selfless service and sacrifice that our veterans make by, again, taking the oath of, to support and defend the so, Constitution. So if you find a deceased Vietnam veteran or Vietnam-era veteran, um, is there a rec- – there, so there is a recognition and there is something there for the family. It's not just we, – we, we, What we try to do um, is if, if the spouse is still alive, we have a surviving spouse lapel to Oh, wow. And uh, we do a special certificate of honor for the surviving spouse. Might take you up on that myself uh, for, for my aunt. We're, and if and just provide the name and before you leave here today, we'll get you a certificate. Okay. Um, how does this commemoration measure success? You know, I, uh, I've been, I recently, uh, earlier this week, met with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Milley. And uh, the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Public Affairs, Rear Admiral John Kirk. And I, it's my elevator speech is our Vietnam veterans is our nation's blood and treasure. Right? And how we're going to measure success is by teaching our children how to love this country, one Vietnam veteran at a time. Okay. It's thanking and honoring every single one of them. How we treat our veterans. Is a reflection of who's actually coming in the door today. True, very true. And and the service chiefs get it. Is there anything that I might have missed or forgot to ask that you think is important to share? You know, um, it's the sense of urgency in the COVID environment. It, it makes it hard on everybody, but we can be thoughtful about how we do it. Right? There's lots of different ways we can do it. Good old American ingenuity can figure this out. And it's a labor of love. You know, it, it makes a difference, and we need to make a difference. 
in the lives of our veterans and the lives of our children, and particularly because of the invisible wounds of war and the national tragedy of suicide. Um, I, I just ask each and every one that's listening to this that, you know, please uh, help, help, help us reach out Vietnam veterans and their families. You know where they are. You, you know who in the neighborhood they are. And, um, and you can go to our website. Very easy to do. We'll ship you your lapel pins. We have a, 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 a bunch of other paraphernalia we can send you. And, uh, we encourage you. We'll empower you to get out there and thank, thank your neighbors, thank your uncles, thank your aunts, your grandfathers. Give them a thank you to that. They give them a thank you that they, they, they never got. They never got. And they and they need it, and and you might start hearing some stories that you didn't know existed, and it, it's just a wonderful, wonderful experience. We served our country like those before us. The camaraderie is what kept me going. You know, it was a dangerous area. All of Vietnam was dangerous. I didn't know what to expect when I got back. For the first 10 years after I got out, no one would have known that I was in the service. I got home, got married two weeks later, got a job. We came back, built lives, families, and communities, but we still had challenges. The carnage of war left an indelible mark on me. I would have intrusive thoughts. They're horrible nightmares. Services and support that can help are available for veterans. I went to the VA, talked to my doctor, I started doing groups. I started doing one-on-one -on -one counseling. We found ways to move past these challenges for ourselves and for our families. At maketheconnection.net, you can hear our stories and find tools and services available to you. The more I talk to people, family, friends, other vets, the better I feel. thank the good general for his time. You can find more about the DOD's Vietnam War commemoration and find out more about how to be a partner by going to VietnamWar50th.com or by calling 1-877-387-9951. This week's Born the Battle Veteran of the Week, I read a blurb about him on Instagram. Uh, I couldn't believe it was true. Uh, so I went to the defense.gov's Medal of Honor section to confirm, and lo and behold, it was. And this was the write-up from defense.gov's Medal of Honor section. Several Medal of Honor recipients earned the honor for a moment of action. But for Army Sergeant Joe Ronnie Hooper, his moment lasted about seven hours, which is fitting considering he's one of the most decorated soldiers of the entire Vietnam War. Hooper was born August 8, 1938 in Piedmont, South Carolina, but he grew up in Washington State. He enlisted in the Navy at 17, serving until his honorable discharge in 1959, and then he later decided to join the Army. Hooper was on his second tour of duty in Vietnam during 1968's Tet Offensive. He was a 29-year-old sergeant in Delta Company 2nd Battalion, 101st Airborne, when he earned his Medal of Honor. On February 21, 1968, Hooper's squad was northwest of Way City, South Vietnam. They were attacking a heavily defended enemy's position near a 20-foot wide stream when a hail of gunfire and rockets came down on them from the Viet Cong. Most of the company was pinned down by gunfire, 
but Huber and five other paratroopers weren't. So we led them across the stream and into the heart of enemy fire, overtaking five enemy bunkers. Now I want to count. I want you to count how many bunkers. Okay, overtaking five enemy bunkers on the opposite shore. Shortly after, the rest of his company saw what they had done and joined the fight. Over the next seven hours, here are some of the things that Hooper did. As more soldiers joined the fight, some were injured. Hooper ran back into the intense fire to save a wounded soldier. He was seriously injured in doing this, but refused medical attention. Hooper single-handedly stormed three more enemy bunkers and destroyed them with hand grenades and rifle fire. He shot two enemy soldiers who had attacked and injured a chaplain and then took the chaplain to safety. During a sweep of the area, he destroyed three more buildings where enemy shooters had been hiding. At one point, Hooper was attacked by a North Vietnamese officer. According to fellow soldier Lonnie Thomas, the officer's rifle jammed and Sergeant Hooper was out of ammo as the enemy tried to escape. But Sergeant Hooper chased him down and stabbed him with his bayonet. From there, he destroyed another bunker and killed everyone inside who was firing on his fellow soldiers. As the squad reached the final line of enemy resistance, they were raked by gunfire from four bunkers on their left flank. Hooper was able to run along the bunker line through a trench, tossing grenades into each one of them. All but two enemy soldiers were killed. He took out two more bunkers after that. I hope you're counting the bunkers because I lost track. Despite having no ammunition left for his rifle, Hooper raced across an open field to rescue a wounded man trapped in a trench. According to Thomas, I called to him and tossed him a 45, mentioning that he might need it. No sooner had he caught it and turned than he came face to face with an NVA raising a rifle to Sergeant Hooper's head. Sergeant Hooper then calmly shot the man dead with the pistol, then carried the wounded man back to safety. Hooper then finished taking out the final pocket of enemy resistance by, by shooting three more North Vietnamese officers. All in a day's work, right? And it actually says that in the writing, all in a day's work. While the enemy had been neutralized, Hooper wasn't done. He established a final line and reorganized his men before finally allowing himself to get medical treatment for the many wounds he suffered. He didn't consent to being evacuated until the next morning when news reports said he'd passed out from blood loss. Hooper's valor, leadership, and selflessness were directly responsible for his company's success that day. The courage he showed served as an example for all that, that served with him. A fellow soldier, Sergeant George Parker, said in his lengthy eyewitness statement of what happened that day, Sergeant Hooper in one day accomplished more than I previously believed could have been done in a month by one man, and he did it all while wounded. It wasn't just the actual count of positions overrun and enemy killed, which was important, but far more so was the fantastic inspiration he gave every man in the company. The Army commissioned Hooper as a second lieutenant after that. He received the Medal of Honor from President Nixon at the White House on March 7, 1969. Reports show he even asked the President for special permission to return to Vietnam. Hooper retired from military service in 1974. He's known as the one of the most decorated soldiers of the Vietnam War, having earned 37 medals, including, of course, the Medal of Honor, two Silver Stars, six Bronze Stars, and eight Purple Hearts. The Army credited him with killing more than 115 North Vietnamese fighters. Hooper went on to breed horses and teach a class on horse betting after leaving the Army. He and his wife, Faye, also had a daughter. Unfortunately, Hooper died of a cerebral hemorrhage just 
five years later in Louisville, Kentucky, on May 6th, 1979, at the age of 40. He is buried at Arlington National Cemetery. Army veteran Joe Hooper. We honor his service. Ready. That's it for this week's episode. If you yourself would like to nominate a Born the Battle Veteran of the Week, you can. Just send an email to podcast at va.gov, include a short write-up, and let us know why you'd like to see him or her as the Born the Battle Veteran of the Week. And if you like this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, pretty much any podcatching app, not a phone, computer, tablet, or man. For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov, and follow the VA on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, RallyPoint, Pinterest, LinkedIn, DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, no matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. And as always, I'm reminded by people smarter than me to remind you that the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast nor any media products or services they may provide. I say that because the song you're hearing now is called Machine Gunner, which is courtesy of the nonprofit Operation Song and was written by Marine veteran Mark McKilhenny, Nashville songwriter Jason Seaver, and Michael Duncan. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you right here next week. Take care. We gotta get them one way or the other. Machine gun. Fire bullets fly to my brain. Simplify till we're done another campaign. My desk is a rock where the drug lords cut up millions. My pen is a 7.62 round that'll cut them down in an instant. Made bullet in my back Raiding down lead Punching that clock Get them boys, I'm laying down Cover machine gunner Bullets fly to night brain Simplify do or die Another campaign Here we go, lock and load 0331, lug a thousand rounds And I ain't bringing back one